Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome to Teeth and Titanium Episode 2. Oscar, we're back. It's actually, I can't even believe we're back. So you know what that means? That means they liked us, right? Or, or it means that we're just persistent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So they either like us or we're persistent. Yeah, yeah. Either um, one works. Either, Yeah, either one works. Yeah. yeah. As long as we're still on the airways, we're happy to have everyone joining us back. We did have great listenership for the first episode. We do have some quick announcements, and that is the... Podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and online, pretty much any podcast app or program you use. We have a lot of listeners that are actually new to podcasting. So we thought it'd be really important to really quickly say, if you have an iPhone, which I think most of our listeners do, and you go to your podcast app, you search for Teeth and Titanium, you just hit subscribe. And what that does is you don't need to worry about looking for episodes or, or tracking what you've listened to, it will automatically download new episodes for you. It'll keep track of where you are in those episodes, if you finish them or not. And also it automatically downloads it on Wi-Fi. So you can listen to the car, plane, wherever you want. So we highly recommend everyone subscribe and that way you'll be getting new episodes each month. So that was just a quick announcement we want to make and let's jump into current events. So, Oscar, as far as current events go, uh, first thing I'll say is we are back. And by that, I mean we're slowly ramping up our activities. That's not a small event. That's big. (laughs) It's big, but we're an anti-COVID-19 talk podcast. Like, we want to limit any kind of mention of COVID-19. Yeah. And that's kind of been our philosophy from episode one, which was last episode. But this is big news. Like, so I'll start with us at McGill. Clinics are starting to ramp up again. We're at 50% capacity. We're still not doing any elective uh, procedures. So it's still only emergency kind of uh, treatment, extractions, infections, biopsies, things like that. Oh, so you like guys that. are still on non-elective treatment, eh? I didn't, I yeah, didn't realize non-elective. that. non-elective. Part of that is because we have a massive clinic that's open air. Uh, okay. So they have to put up like temporary yes. walls and stuff okay, like that. Okay. So that's kind of limiting that us. But clinic-wise, uh, consults, falls, things like that, we're back at 50%. But the huge news, I mean, selfishly for me, was OR time came back. We have two hours a week, which is less than we had before, but still two yeah. more than we had for the past couple months. Sure. So we've been doing about two cases, uh, sorry, two ORs a, a week, which is great. And it just meant that I was able to get in the OR a little bit more before I graduate. This is the month of my graduation. So I kind of wanted to get the hands a little wet before moving to the U.S. I think that's, How about huge, you? that's huge news for your, for your part right there. And so for mine, I think there's two perspectives from the resident side, because I still talk to them. They started to ramp up as well. So yeah, they're up to, I think, three ORs a week or maybe four, but their program is double the size. So it evens out to roughly two as, as well, the same per person. Um, so they're sense. happy about sense. that. But on me, on a selfish note, which is what I really care about, um, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Am I still making more money than you? That's, that's an active thing we need to track. No. <laughs> no, no, okay. I was saying that's you good. are. Yes, I am not. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, no, we are starting to ramp up officially. Uh, so Ontario has given the go ahead that we can start ramping up clinics for even elective treatment as of pretty much this Monday that just went by. We're, my, my practice, and I would say most practices in Ontario are slowly ramping up because you want to take the necessary precautions. You want to make sure the staff is safe. You want to make sure your patients are safe. So even though we've had the go ahead, we are doing things gradually. All right, perfect. So it's great news that both of us are kind of getting back into it. Uh, other current events happen this month, obviously, graduation this year for all of us chief residents. Unfortunately, 
no exams going on, but the NDSC did say and announce that they're going to have their uh, licensing exam for oral surgery specialists. Oh, nice. It's going to be taking uh, place in September. So they said it's going to be either September 22nd or 23rd. At least you have a date. Um, at least you have a date. At least we have a date. I mean, it is three days before my wife gives birth to our first child. So no so, priorities there is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, so not the, not the ideal time. Not the ideal week uh, they could, yeah, have, uh, yeah, yeah. could have picked. But, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see how yeah, things go. We'll yeah, play it by year. Yeah. That was a, a big announcement that came out. And then we're still waiting on the RCDC to kind of make their move and see when that exam is going to be. But... Other than that, no other current events to get into. Now we're going to jump into our interview with Dr. Lee McFadden. Uh, Oscar and I, every other episode, we're trying to bring on a guest uh, from the community that can bring in a unique perspective. And for sure, we wanted to talk to him about his approach to orthopedic surgery. I think we had a great time with him. And let's check out that interview now. All right. So here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Lee McFadden. So great to have you on the Teeth and Titanium podcast. Our first guest. So... That'll be a trivia question one day once we're at like a thousand episodes. It's a pretty special one, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. We wanted to bring you on to discuss, first of all, you know, when people kind of are introduced on podcasts or for presentations, they're always listed with like their academic accolades, their publications, where they trained, all that kind of stuff. We're not like that on this podcast. When we introduce people, we only give them the bare bones of what they need to know. And when it comes to you, what you're known for is you're attending staff at University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and you do a ton of orthonathic. So we brought you on the podcast because we want to talk about your unique approach. And it's something that we as residents, I mean, for sure now in my residency and Oscar, when he was resident, whenever we hear about Manitoba, whenever you hear about you, we always hear the same thing, which is he does a ton of orthonathic and he does it in a unique way. Wendell, you're right. It's like it's a legend. We all hear about it in Toronto and McGill at your school. Like everyone hears about Dr. McFadden. Exactly. So that, that, that's interesting to me because I never think of it as being very unique, frankly. I think that um, uh, this is the way I was taught, which was a long time ago now. And so I think that all of the folks that I trained with or trained at least around the same time as I did, I'm sure that they would consider this kind of everyday run of the mill sort of thing. So as a resident in Dalhousie, we did an awful lot of orthognathic surgery at that time. And I've kind of uh, continued to do pretty much the same thing, I think. I'm sure that there have been some tweaks made along the, say, along the line, but uh, I don't see it as very unique. I see it as kind of repetitive and <laughs> the same thing every day. So, so let's start off there then. How many years have you been practicing oral surgery and how long have you been a staff at uh, Manitoba? Well, I graduated from, I finished at Dalhousie in uh, 1984, so I think about 36 years of clinical practice, I guess. I, well, as soon as I got to Winnipeg, I started uh, teaching at the undergraduate clinic at the University of Manitoba. So in 1984, I think I began there. And in 84 or 85, I also started teaching at the grad ortho clinic. And it was a, a, a year or two later that I became a little bit more involved uh, with the oral surgery program because my partner at the time was the uh, head of the program. So I had minimal involvement um, until... No, maybe the mid '90s. I became um, kind of more involved uh, mid to late '90s, and my involvement has kind of increased with the residents uh, since then. And so, when you say you've moved after Dalhousie, so originally from Manitoba or originally from Nova Scotia? Well, I, I graduated from the University of Alberta uh, Dental School in '84, and I did an internship there for a year, 
And I practiced in Slave Lake for a couple of years with one of my dental school classmates before I got accepted and went back to Dalhousie. Okay, okay. So that makes sense. So that's the tie there. Yeah, originally in Albertan. Okay. To follow up that next question is, on average, so over the years, how many orthognathic surgeries would you say you perform a year? A little bit over 200 a year, I suppose. I mean, we have we have listeners from all over Canada as well as the U.S., but I think the general consensus will be one staff doing 200 a year is, is incredibly, incredibly high number. I know at UFT, uh, Oscar, you have Dr. Kameny that's also doing an absolute ton of orthognathic. And we kind of have more of a group approach where everyone's doing high numbers here. But, um, 200, but 200 for one person a lot. is like, that's unheard of. That's yeah. a lot. So one thing we want to talk to you about is what is your approach to the orthognathic workup? So specifically, if you're seeing a new patient for orthognathic surgery, they've been referred to you by the orthodontist. What's your clinical and radiographic workup? What do you think is necessary to collect? And what do you think is not necessary? And does it change based on the complexity of the case? I think that the initial assessment probably doesn't vary based on the complexity of the case. And uh, I think this is, maybe it's because of repetitiveness, but I think that it's all fairly easy, I would say. So I, I think what happens is that the patient comes from the orthodontist usually with a, a letter uh, before they've become, begun treatment. Um, and, and, I, and I get the models and some clinical photos and x-rays along with the patient coming. And I have a glance at those. But frankly, I think that what I was taught a long time ago is that what you should do when you see a patient is do a clinical evaluation, gather the information you need to make a diagnosis. And, and that's true, I think, whether it's for orthognathic surgery or for trauma. Once you make that clinical evaluation, clinical diagnosis, then I think that you should support it with radiographs and models in orthognathic surgery, or if it's trauma, then you go get your x-rays rather than rushing to make a diagnosis based on x-rays, which is, I don't think, the correct thing. So what I do when I see the patient is, um, frankly, it's a quick glance. So we talk with residents about clinical evaluation, facial symmetry, facial thirds, facial fifths and then components of the face, both in full facial and side view. But I think of those become pretty repetitive as soon as you glance at a patient's face. So frankly, I think as you walk down the street and see people, you should be able to say, well, that person is this diagnosis and that patient is this diagnosis. And so I, I also hearken back to some articles from the 70s a long time ago about uh, mandibular deficiency syndrome, because I think that steepness of mandibular plane angle plays a a significant role. And I, so I think that people with low mandibular plane angles have a certain facial balance, people with median mandibular plane angles and people with high facial angles. And I think that that was originally described for mandibular deficiency, but I also think that it holds true for maxillary deficiency. So I think that you can clinically, when you see the patient make a diagnosis and pretty quickly come up with a basic surgical treatment plan that they need, and then I think if you look at the x-rays and you look at the models to help confirm those. And are you mostly using plain films for your x-rays, like a pan and a lateral ceph, PA? Yeah, a, a pan, a pan, yeah. so what they come with is a pan and a ceph, pan and ceph for the most part. Yeah. And so then I, I spend some time talking with the patient and the family about uh, what I think their diagnosis is, what I can see that suggest, and I point out some things that, so lip incompetence is, a, you know, I think an important thing. I think that you can easily point that out to patients and parents, and they quickly understand that. They say, oh, that's how come he can't breathe. You take some time to point out a few of those things, 
and then describe to them what you're going to do from a surgical point of view. And what I tell people is that there's always a deformity in the maxilla and the mandible, but sometimes we can treat in one jaw, not two. It's nice to hear from you because it kind of just reaffirms things that, that you get taught during training, the difference between a novice and an expert. Because like what you say is you see a patient and you're already thinking of the diagnosis and of your surgical plan before really doing anything else, just by visualizing them. And that's what our instructors, when I first was training, that's what they would show us and they would tell us. But it's hard as a first year resident to kind of capture that. But it is true. The more you see it, and obviously I'm not comparing me or Wendell to you because the hundreds of cases you've done. No, but it, but it is but the you, same. It, yeah, that's great. That's great to have that reaffirmed. So what that makes me interested in is I remember as a first year resident at Dalhousie walking around with Dr. Precious and the uh, senior resident, uh, uh, Mike Harper, we'd go up and see a patient and we'd come out of the room and they'd be saying, well, I, you know, there's this, that, and the other thing. And, and I'd be sitting there thinking, well, how is this ever going to work? And then just, I guess, repetitiveness, all of a sudden you realize that you're using the same terminology and all those things it seemed to fall into place and make sense. And how you said how you, when you walk, you get to the level when you walked on the street, you just be able to tell different people skeletal facial morphologies. I remember when I first went to dental school, you start noticing everyone's teeth for the first time. Yeah. And then when you go into oral surgery, you start noticing everyone's facial profiles for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So that's definitely something that happens there. But but that's that. Yeah, that is really nice to hear kind of that, that even though things are done differently, the end result or the beginning part is all done the same. And it's based on your, on your clinical diagnosis, on what you see of the patient. I think that's the most important thing. So to get to another question, so now we, we kind of tease people on saying that you do things differently, at least than me and Wendell were taught. So that's the big question I'm going to ask now. So you're really known for performing orthognathic surgery without an intermediate or final splint, as well as cutting both the maxilla and the mandible to completion at the same time. Can you kind of walk us through this approach and how you do it? So I think that Wendell had mentioned um, how I do it compared to a traditional approach. And I have to tell you that I would think that what I do is traditional. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this is all perspective, so, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I, I guess so. So, yeah. so I don't remember much from dental school and particularly from prosthodontics. But the one thing I remember from dental school was being told by the prosthodontist that the most accurate articulation was hand-to-hand -hand articulation. And so that stuck with me. And when I was a resident, we would treat some patients who didn't have orthodontic control and you'd have a hard time getting their teeth to fit together. And so I remember as a resident making splints for those patients so that we could get their teeth in some kind of a, a position. But from my point of view, if the orthodontics are done well, then most of the time you can pretty accurately fit their occlusion together at the time of surgery. And again, when I was a resident, we used to wire people's teeth together. And the concern was at that stage of the game that you wouldn't really know what their final occlusion was till you took the fixation off. And if you had somebody with a splint, uh, we never were really sure of where auto rotation was. And the thicker the splint was, the more potential you had for missing your final occlusion with the splint. And so, you know, we were taught to make thin splints. So we don't use, I don't use splints very often. On Wednesday, we're treating a patient where the orthodontist, a cleft patient who hasn't done a very good job of keeping his teeth clean and the orthodontist just wants to get things done so that she can get out of ortho treatment with them. So we're going to use a splint for that patient so that we can give her what she wants because the occlusion doesn't fit. I don't use splints very often. If the orthodontist makes a splint and wants me to use it, I'm happy to do so. When I was a resident, again, uh, the way I was taught was to do the mandible first, because if you did the maxilla first, when you went to do the mandible, you had the maxilla kind of in your way. 
we would do the maxilla, we would do the mandible, or we do the mandible, we do the maxilla, sorry, take the teeth out at the same time, put the patient in fixation, and then position the maxillomandibular complex relative to the superior maxilla and fix it into that position, and then go to the mandible and do the fixation there, and then go to the chin and do the chin. So this, this is just the part that I want, I want all the listeners to be clear about, because when people hear, you know, splintless orthognathic or doing a different way, very recent grads or very recent trainees will think, of course, we can do orthognathic without uh, splints. You just have patient-specific implants, patient-specific orthognathic cutting guides, patient-specific maxillary yeah. plates. We're not talking about any of that. We're not talking about, you know, the $10,000 plates that are custom built for the maxilla during a VSP session. What you're describing is you're doing your Lafort 1 osteotomy and down fracture in the case. You're doing your BSSO and splitting the mandible. Correct. Both the maxilla and the mandible are mobile. You're then putting them into MMF with yeah. hand articulation to their best possible occlusion. Yeah. And then you're just taking the whole maxilla mandibular complex and positioning the maxilla where you think the maxilla needs to be. Correct. So how are you determining where the maxilla should be? So I don't think that it makes any difference with except for distraction cases i've never used custom cutting guides i don't think that if, if for instance if and when we do vsp we'll do one jaw or the other jaw but i don't think that the end result is much different because for instance if you have somebody with a so i i base my treatment whether it's the way i do it or when we do vsp what i do if it, assuming that somebody needs bimaxillary surgery and assuming that there's no big asymmetry that's a challenge, but just the average vertical max axis with a posterior vertical max axis, mandibular deficiency, anterior open bite and flat labial mental contour, I base all my treatment on the tooth-to-lip relationship, whether it's with or without VSP. So if the maxilla, if the tooth-to-lip relationship suggests that the maxilla needs to go up seven millimeters, well, we're going to go up seven millimeters whether we've done VSP or not. My finding has been that if you've got a five millimeter anterior open bite, if you're not going to do counterclockwise rotation, then you need to go up five millimeters more in the posterior than you do in the anterior. So when it comes time to do the surgery, then I make the cut in the maxilla and I remove the amount of bone that needs to be removed. If I need to go up five millimeters in the anterior, I move five millimeters of bone and I measure that. So interestingly, do you know what the width of a number eight round burr is? No, I don't. 1.8 millimeters, I think. Now I do. Yeah. Now I do. <laughs> so... So, so we remove the amount of bone that we need to go up in the anterior and the posterior, and we make sure we can move the maxilla to fit that position. So then we put the teeth in fixation, and then we move the maxilla. We make sure that we've got it fit, and then we... So what I, I still use a couple of wires in the posterior rather than some plates, because what I find is that if I position the maxilla, I can tighten those wires, and then the maxilla is in position, and then I can put some plates on the piriform rim and hold the maxilla where I want it. So where this becomes a little more of a challenge, I suppose, would you say, well, okay, what about the AP maxillary deficiency that you're going to move? So you got 14 millimeters and you're going to move the maxilla eight and the mandible six or whatever the case might be. So then, then what we do is I measure from the piriform rim to make sure I'm coming forward eight millimeters. And I'm sure there are some that it's only seven millimeters, and I'm sure that there are some that it's nine millimeters. But I don't think it's been a great difference between what I've done with or without the VSPs. Because what you're saying as far as your positioning the maxilla is very similar to what Oscar will do, what I will do, which is you're basing your entire treatment on the maxilla and the loop to t uh, lip to tooth relationship. Yeah. So I get that. My question is more, if you don't have something that's a simple impaction or a straight advancement, if you have a combination, you know, sometimes you can have telescoping of the, of the maxilla. 
or you can have parts of the sinus wall that break off. So how, how accurate are these measurements that you're making intra-op? Well, I, I have to tell you that I don't think I've ever seen telescoping. The piriform rim, the bone there is pretty firm, unless you are unfortunate in that fractures. And using a drill to remove bone on the lateral walls of the maxilla, I use a drill rather than a saw. When I use the saw periodically as a resident, I think we saw more fractures of the lateral walls of the maxilla. And you're right, periodically there's a patient that's got really thin walls and things might uh, fracture. But usually the zygomatic buttress, there's enough bone that you can get a transosseous wire or a plate. And, and that stays fairly stable, I would say. So I may be off a millimeter by the time we're done. If we have somebody who have to impact their maxilla six millimeters and advance their maxilla eight millimeters and put their mandible back uh, four millimeters, you know, maybe we're a little bit more accurate if we got VSP. I'm not convinced of that. What I do think is important is to check midlines, maxillary midlines, because I think that what is uh, more concerning is if you miss the maxillary midline. Yeah, and so I'll agree with you exactly on that point. Really, our end result, whether it's VSP, model surgery, or you splintless, is you really want your midlines to be on and your central incisor tooth show to be on because that's what people are going to see. Like, that's our end result. Yeah, I think of the other big thing. I think that if you want to show, uh, if, if you're asked to give a talk to somebody and they want you to show before and after pictures, the patient that you want to treat is a patient who you bring their back bring their maxilla forward, particularly if it's an attractive young lady. But if you bring, if you have somebody who has a genioplasty done, I think that that's a significant finishing factor. I think that it's functional because I think that it makes a difference between lip uh, competence or not. But I think that that's something that's really noticeable to patients and to other people who are, are looking at patients post-treatment. And I think you actually, I guess, answered one of our questions or, or kind of led towards another question is, if you aren't, let's say you're not going to do your, your traditional approach, which is not our traditional approach, but you are planning on using a splint, <laughs> do you do a model surgery or do you do VSP? I don't do very much segmental maxillary surgery any longer. So I don't do very much model surgery anymore. And, and I think that if you, if you see the patient pre-treatment and the patient goes through orthodontics, when they arrive back for you to see them before surgery... I don't think that there should be reason, unless it was planned at the outset, I don't think that there should be reason for doing segmental surgery to make up for poor orthodontic alignment. And so I think if you're doing that, you've got, I think you're going to have a hard time getting as good of a result as if the orthodontist got things where they're supposed to, rather than having you trying to compensate for lack of orthodontic progress. So it always bothered me to have to put patients through two surgeries when I started uh, to consider surgically assisted rapid palatal expansion. Because as a resident, we always just did, we did a lot of four-piece maxillas. And when I started here, we did a lot of four-piece maxillas. And then we moved to two-piece maxillas. But what I found is that I saw some young patients who were mandibular deficient with a little bit of transverse maxillary deficiency. So we had advanced their mandible and we do a two-piece maxilla. And, if, and then they weren't staying as stable as what we would like them to be and opening up a little bit. So we started to move towards uh, doing surgically assisted rapid palatal expansion to address uh, width. And uh, I think if you can get the width, usually people can, the orthodontist can get arch alignment so that you can get a, a one-planed uh, maxillary occlusal plane so that you don't have to do segmental surgery. You don't have to do very much four-piece maxillary surgery, I would say. So while we're on that topic then, someone the first question someone's going to ask is, 
you know, in the age of VSP, they've said that segmental surgery has now gone from 25% to 70% of cases. Whether that is because we're identifying more transverse discrepancies than we did before, or we're just overcorrecting and doing more segmentals because, you know, we're, we're just seeing more data and things like that is kind of, you know, up for debate and not, not the point of the conversation. But the first thing someone's going to ask is, let's say you identify someone that does still have a transverse deficiency in the maxilla. Pre-treatment or pre-surgery? Pre-treatment. Yeah. Pre-treatment. Yeah. And does this mean you're always going to do a SARPI first? But like if you had to do a segmental afford, are you then going to use a splint? Are you then going to do your approach in any different way? Again, I think that depends a little bit on the orthodontist and how well they've got things orthodontically aligned. Because I think if you're going to do a two-piece maxilla, for instance, then the orthodontics needs to be done from the get-go preparing for a two-piece maxilla. So when you get to the point where you're going to do the surgery and you do the two pieces, the teeth should still fit together. There shouldn't be discrepancies. Now, if the orthodontics hasn't gotten to the point where you can set those two segments in securely, then I think that you need to use a, a splint to fit to that. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about, you know, the pros of this approach, obviously, decreased cost of workup. Uh, you're kind of simplifying the approach and taking it back to fundamentals, which is great. Also, from a learning perspective, you don't want to become dependent on technology or VSP or what you're seeing. Have you noticed any cons of this approach of cutting both jaws at the same time, whether it be bad splits? Does it affect you more or less? Or, you know, when you look at your results afterwards, have you noticed anything thinking, mm, if I had done one jaw at a time, this would have been easier? Like, is there any negative side to this approach? Well, it's like saying I've never had a complication. So, <laughs> so there, I'm sure there, and I never have, of course, but I'm sure that there has to be, so I'm sure there have to be negatives. And frankly, I'm, I'm, but I'm hard pressed to identify them. So I think that the negatives would be, uh, we spoke about it earlier, trying to hit the midline, making sure your midline is on, because I think that that's crucial. And I'm sure that if you use a splint, an intermediate splint, that might be easier. When you talk about bad splits, Frankly, I don't think it should have bad splits. I think that you should do things to make sure that every split is not going to be a bad split. And frankly, I think that if you take wisdom teeth out at the same time as you do your split, I think of that deep, do I have any scientific evidence? No, this is just me talking off the cuff here. I think that there are times that that makes it easier because you can have a place where you can put an instrument where you know it's going to be safe because it's only touching the tooth, but not something else. So I think that the biggest problem is with the uh, is with midlines, and I guess that the other would be with hitting the as you alluded to earlier. If you got somebody who you've got significant AP discrepancy, particularly if there's a, a vertical component of it, to make sure that you've made the correct AP corrections in the right places. What I do worry about, and and again, maybe this doesn't make a lot of sense, but what I worry about with doing a maxilla first with an intermediate splint and then fixing the maxilla and then going to do the mandible is putting the mouth prop in there and cranking the mouth prop open and wondering if the, if the fixation that I've applied to the maxilla is actually holding the maxilla where it's supposed to. Uh, so if you've got somebody with an anterior open bite and you've positioned the maxilla and you've gone up five millimeters in the posterior to allow for auto rotation and now you've fixed the maxilla and now you're going to do the mandible and you crank the mandible open, maybe you're pushing the anterior maxilla up another millimeter. And so maybe when you're all done, maybe you've got, maybe you still left them with a, a millimeter of, you know, relative anterior open bite tendency. That may not be true. I don't know if it's true, but that, that's one of the things that I've, I've wondered about. Wendell, on that point, do you guys do mainly maxilla first or mandible first at McGill? Just trying to get a different perspective. 
I'd say the default leans towards Magzilla first if possible. But to be honest here, we really just look at, is it beneficial to do Mandible first and Magzilla first? I think in a future episode, we're going to tackle this whole Mandible first, Magzilla first kind of debate and argument. Is there even really a debate necessary? The reason Um, I ask is because like we are probably 80%, which most, a lot of our cases are done by Dr. Caminiti. And so those are 90% Mandible Mandible first. Yeah. But even his reasons for Mandible first is pretty much he had his talks. He says he does mostly Mandible first. And the one time it's Magzilla, he might forget. And he's worried about that. So now he just does Mandible he, first he, all the time. He does it kind of for, yeah, just repetition doing it. And and then the argument is like, what if you have a bad split? And he says the same argument that Dr. McFadden says, you shouldn't have a bad split. <laughs> yeah, which, which is which is great for, I think it's great for experienced surgeons. But for us lowly uh, residents, we're a little bit more worried about it, maybe. <laughs> I do the same thing repetitively over and over and over again. And so if I do anything that's a little bit different, the resident will look up me and say, you know, what's going on here? So everything is done exactly the same all of the time. And I do the mandible first when I'm going to do both jaws simultaneously. If I'm going to do VSP and um, uh, intermediate splints, frankly, I don't care which jaw I do first, but I would probably do the mandible first simply because I do the mandible first all of the time. I think it's true for your double. We need to come up with it. Have you come up with a name to talk about the way you do it? Like the double fracture approach or the double cut approach? I'm not sure. When you're cutting both the mandible and the mandible at the same time. Traditional orthognathic surgery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, from now on, call, okay, when you're doing traditional orthognathic surgery, I think you'd have to do the mandible first because if you, if you do the Lafort first, the mandible is going to be flopping around in the it's, way when you're trying to cut your mandible. And we've, yeah. I've done that and it's quite an annoyance. Yeah. 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 In regards to the sagittal split, for what it's worth, I think that the most important thing that you have to do is to make sure your vertical osteotomy is through the entire inferior border. And if you don't do that, you're going to have a bad split every time. And so the only thing that I check when the resident is doing the opposite side is they do the entire osteotomy. No, that's not true. Depending on if they're first year, I'll check the depth to make sure that their sagittal cut is deep enough. But the only thing that I checked with the senior resident is to make sure that we're through the inferior border, because frankly, I don't have time to have a bad split and have to try and repair things. So the only thing I might modify is to get through the inferior border. I think you have to look in the channel retractor and see no cortical bone at the inferior border. And I think that if you do that, you're going to have a good split every time. And I think that if you start opening your split, you know, so we use quarter inch osteotomes. I think if you start opening your split and you leave her in the anterior and you go to the posterior and you leave her in the posterior, if you don't hear it pop and, and see that anterior release before you do anything else, then you got to stop and go back and redo the inferior border. And I think if you do that, your splits are going to be pretty predictable. And so then this kind of a predictable and repetition leads me to my next question. So traditional, we're going to use yours as traditional because you're right. That is the traditional orthognathic technique that works perfectly in your hands and you have a ton of experience. And then, so me and me and Wendell have more been taught with VSP and that, that kind of methodology. Do you think that one is easier to teach and to perfect for a resident? Like is, is your method great for your hands, but maybe a little bit harder for a new orthognathic surgeon to work with compared to VSP, which may be easier? Or do you feel that, no, really there's no difference in that? So I think that if you have trained with a surgeon who treats every patient with VSP and intermediate splints, then that's going to be what your norm is and what you're going to be comfortable with. And probably to step out of that would be a little bit hard. So if your twin brother came and 
trained with me and did it the way that I was taught to do to step out and do something different might be a little bit hard for them, but they would both end up, I think, in the same place. So what I've tried to do over the last number of years is to do some more VSP cases simply so the residents have the opportunity to do it. But I think in the end, really, I think what this comes back to is that I think of them, I believe, so you can do a sagittal split, you can do a maxillary osteotomy. So whether you do the maxilla first or the mandible first, you're still doing the maxilla the same way you always do. You're doing the mandible the same way you always do. Whether you use intermediate splints or not, you're still ending up with the occlusion in the where you want it to be. So I think that the most important thing comes to diagnosis. I think that the biggest potential for error is making a bad diagnosis and treating things, having a treatment plan based on bad diagnosis. So I think that if somebody tells you a diagnosis, you should be able to tell them what the patient looks like and what the treatment they need. If someone tells you, you, if somebody tells you this patient needs this treatment, I think you should be able to describe to them what the patient's deformity is. And when you're comfortable doing that, then I think that you're good to go. So Ben Davis, I was having this talk at a Royal College meeting with Ben Davis a number of years back, and I was saying I couldn't figure out why we were moving so heavily to VSP questions on the exam. And his, his comment was, well, you've done a lot of this and you have more experience and so you're comfortable with it, but lots of people aren't. And, and it's frankly, it's hard for me to envision that because I think that everybody, I think I said to Wendell, I figure if I can do it, everybody can do it. You know, I don't think there's anything very mystical about it. Yeah, I think the reality is, as you said, the clinical appraisal, your diagnosis and figuring out a treatment plan is the most important part. Everything else is just kind of gravy. As you said, your cuts are going to be the same. Your end goal is going to be the same. You're going to be occlusion driven. You're going to be maxillary position driven. We are dealing with the reality now with technology and with kind of trying to speed things up that you're speaking on a podcast to, you know, I'm a chief resident about to graduate this month and I've never done model surgery. I've only ever done making a splint for a single jaw case or doing a VSP for a Bimax case. And then Oscar, I don't know about you at, at Toronto. I know that you guys are kind of like all VSP now, but when you started, were you doing more model surgery? Have you done a little bit of both or never done a so model surgery in my, either? In my first year, pretty much we transitioned almost entirely to VSP. So I did two model surgeries in my entire training, which were pretty much my first two cases. And I think that's one reason why maybe the exam also is shifting is because the current crop of residents graduating, it's not standard that everyone's actually even doing model surgery at all. Yeah, I haven't done model surgery for years, frankly. Even if we're going to do segmental surgery, I'm lazy and don't do model surgery for a, a long <laughs> I'm time. I'm sure your residents love that. <laughs> well, and, 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 and periodically, if we have somebody who, and I, and, and I have to tell you, I haven't made a splint for a long time. If we have somebody who needs a splint, it's either the orthodontist that makes it or periodically the resident that makes it. And periodically, you know, I don't remember the last time that we actually had a resident do model surgery. We used to I mean, when I first started with the residents, we used to, I used to get models made just so we could go practice doing model surgeries. We haven't done that for a long time. Yeah, so we don't do any model surgery. Okay, perfect. So I think we've talked a lot about kind of the advice you give to residents and things to look at when, mm-hmm. when treatment planning and when actually in the OR. What advice would you give to new practitioners that are trying to establish an orthopedic surgery into their practice or trying to hone their craft. So we have a lot of listeners that 
are recent grads. So, you know, they've done great training programs. They've done a lot of orthopedic surgery. Then you enter private practice. You don't have as many referrals at first. You feel like your, your hand skills maybe are starting to decay. What advice would you give to new practitioners that want to do orthopedic, that want to do a lot of it? So yesterday was my first day working in 12 weeks. And the first case, I don't know if it's because I was off for 12 weeks or because I had all the, you know, the face mask and the N95 mask. But the, the first case that we did yesterday, it was like looking at a new landscape. I felt like I'd been so long since uh, since I had done that. Uh, so so I, I think of that certainly a, a challenge. So w- what I did, and of course, this was a long time ago. And so I think that it, when I watch surgeons now coming along, I, I think that their progression of their practice mirrors what I did, but on a, a slower uptake, if you will. When I graduated, I guess I came to a place where there wasn't a lot of orthognathic surgery being done, which was good for me. So I took the bull by the horns and I went and met a couple of orthodontists. And so I think, first off, you have to meet an orthodontist that sees surgery as beneficial. And I'm hoping that the orthodontic residents that we train at the University of Manitoba, for instance, do see orthognathic surgery as beneficial. The first orthodontist that I did a lot of work with told me that it decreased his treatment time so that he could finish cases faster. And so in, in effect, it was a financial gain from him. So I think that you need to make that contact. And then I think that you both need to be on the same page. So that we talked earlier about the, the lingo or the, you need to be able to talk to the orthodontist about the same sort of things. You have to recognize the challenges that they've had got to do and try and make, make it easier for them to, so they don't have very many challenges. So when you've got when you've got the orthodontist on side, then I think that you have to be real good with the patient and family. I think that you need to treat them very well so that they like you and that they trust you. And then, of course, I think that you need to get a good result because if you send back every, we all can have a complication. And if you have a complication on your first case with an orthodontist. You know, that makes it tougher, but you have to sell the orthodontist that looks and I miss that one. I won't miss the next one. But if you have two or three misses, the orthodontist isn't going to stick with you for very long. So I think that you need that. And if the patient goes back to you, goes back to the orthodontist and said, yeah, the results are not are pretty good, but boy, I hate that guy. You, you, the orthodontist is going to hear about that as well. So I, I think that you need to make contact with an orthodontist that's uh, similar in thinking as you I think that you need to treat the patients well. I think that you need to get the best results that you can. If you have a complication, you got to stick in there with the patient and the orthodontist and get the best results that you can because you know that you're going to have those complications. And when it happens, you got to make the, the best that you can out of it. That's all good information. And from speaking of being a new grad, like just a year out, I think there there's the kind of two kinds of people who are going to do orthognathic surgery in private practice. And I think, Dr. McFadden, you were actually a mesh of both. One is that there's a niche in your area where someone isn't doing orthognathic, so you almost fall into it. So that was one. But two, that you are also someone who just really likes orthognathic and then is going to pursue that even if there isn't a niche. So you were actually both. You pushed it on your own. You went to go talk to orthodontist. You were also lucky enough to join an area where there wasn't that much orthognathic surgery being done. Yeah. Well, and at that time, you know, that was a long time ago when orthognathic surgery was... We did an awful lot in Halifax, but in other places, not so much being done. And my goal when I left my residency was that I wanted to go out and have 
an orthognathic surgery practice. Now, <laughs> I've ended up missing out on some other things, perhaps as a result. But you know, this is what I had hoped for at the get go. So, so I've been fortunate that way, I suppose. Yeah, it's tough to have all aspects of oral surgery and do enough of everything. Exactly, you kind right. of have to. You kind of have to focus down every now and then. One thing that came to mind is you kind of mentioned as far as results and things like that. A lot of us residents, when we talk to these conferences and we meet and we meet with Manitoba residents and we, we hear about, you know, the way you're, you're doing this orthopedic surgery, one of the first questions we ask is, this sounds amazing, but why hasn't he published it? Why are there no pictures? Why is there no case reports? Why is there no journal describing technique? Because I personally haven't read in a textbook. I haven't read in a journal. I haven't seen a case report where it says, no splints, cut both jaws, position it this way. Here's a patient before, here's a patient during, here's a, here's a patient after you're doing 200 a year, you could have one of the greatest case series of all time. So why has there not been a publication or some kind of production to show us this? I thought from my point of view, if I can do it, I figure that everybody is doing it the same way. And I don't think I invented it. I think that David Precious invented it or not invented it, but started it. And I'm just doing the same thing. So like in your eyes, this is the norm. Like there's nothing special about it. Right. And so it interests me that, so I'm pleased that you thought of me to invite me on the podcast, frankly, because it seems to me that I'm not sure what I would, if I was to give an hour lecture on orthognathic. So, I mean, I've talked to, I was invited to come out to UBC to talk to the grad ortho program out there on a couple of occasions. And I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed my time with the residents here in ortho and in surgery. I don't know if there's anything special about what we're doing. And I, I always wonder what I would find to talk to people about for an hour about orthognathic surgery, because it all seems to me that you would likely know everything I would tell you already. And so it always interests me that people are going around giving lectures and a lot of lectures seem to me to be finding, making something out of what I would consider nothing, because I think that it's just kind of a lot of the things that are spoken about are just givens from my point of view. Yeah, no, I think uh, for me, I, I've attended a ton of conferences, watched a ton of lectures. And I think by the time you get to your chief here, you realize everyone's kind of saying the same thing. And if they're not, they might just be trying to invent something different. But then every now and then you get a lecture that shows their personal experience. And it is a little bit different. It does kind of make sense. So I think for you, I mean, if you were invited to give a talk at a conference, I think, honestly, if you just showed a case series of these are the last 10 cases I did, this was single jaw, this was double jaw, this was segmental, this is our approach, this was our interrupt photo, this is our final result. I honestly think from a residency point of view, and just staff, just seeing a, a different approach, it's always nice to see something different. I know you don't think it's different, but considering I trained at McGill, and never, I've never seen it this way, Oscar trained at U of T, never seen it this way. Uh, we have friends at Dalhousie, we have friends at Man, we have friends at all the different residency, residency programs, and we know Dal is known for orthognathic, we know that you're known for orthognathic, and when I speak to your current residents, we always ask them, is it true? Does he actually do it that way? And how does it work? And it's true because I've never even met you personally, but I already knew of you from residency. Well, it, it, <laughs> that's what happens <laughs> when you get older, I guess. So, that, um, <laughs> so, I mean, if somebody asked me, I'd be happy to do something. But so when I was a resident again, which was a long time ago, you know, you never knew anybody from McGill or, or Toronto or any of those programs. Nowadays, it continues to surprise me that you felt you folks keep in as close of contact. And I think it's great that you do. Listen, Adam doesn't have an RCDC exam to study for. Get him on this paper. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be happy about that. 
Yeah. So. <laughs> a part a parting gift in his last month of residency. He's he's probably gonna kill By me the for way, saying Adam, that. If I got one more thing for you to do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can thank Wendell for yeah, that. Yes, yesterday yeah. was his last day of operating, so he's got a couple more uh, weeks that maybe he can knock it off in that time. <laughs> exactly. So I'll, this has been great. Unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. We just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for being so candid about everything. Are there any uh, shout outs you want to give uh, before you leave us? So you, you got to start with your mom and dad and your and my wife and kids, of course. My, my dad was the head of the Department of Anatomy at the University of Alberta, and I was playing football when I was in the 12th grade and I broke some teeth on a Friday night. And Saturday, he had me in a dentist's office called by the name of Ken Hart. And I thought I was going to be a physician, but Dr. Hart was the coolest guy I'd ever met. And so I decided I wanted to go into dentistry. Uh, Ron Warren, in the first month or so of dental school, showed a video of some guys doing an eye and, an extra oral IND. And I said to him, are those dentists? And he said, yeah, those are oral surgeons. And so the first month of dentistry, I knew I wanted to be an oral surgeon. That's funny. Two events changed your life. Yeah. Uh, Murray Mickleborough, when I did my internship, is the person who let me do my first extra oral vertical ramus osteotomy. And he told me after that, you'll never be happy being a dentist. You'll have to be an oral surgeon. And I'm sure that he's the reason that I got into oral surgery because he wrote the letter of reference. And as Frank Lovely, he's good friends with Frank Lovely, who accepted me into residency. Frank said that Murray was the smartest person he'd ever examined at the Royal College. And he was good friends with David Precious, who, of course, taught, I think, me and yeah, got, he, I think David taught me and a lot of other people good care and precision and a whole lot of things. The two of my resident friends, uh, Mike Harper was an excellent surgeon, and John uh, Lava was probably one of the three smartest people that I ever knew. I got to mention the folks that I've met at the Royal College and the CAOMS, because never did I imagine I would know people right across the country, particularly some of the people who are a little bit younger than I who have expanded the scope. So I've been really blessed to be interacted with all of those people. And uh, the residents that I've encountered, um, mainly here, but in across the country as well, talking to people at meetings. And I can't believe how intelligent uh, residents are and how uh, driven and keen they are. So they keep you on your toes and they keep you in touch and um, they make things pleasant and fun, I think. Awesome. That's a great, great shout out. So uh, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast and hopefully we'll see you around soon pleasure. I appreciate very much your thinking about me. Thanks so much, Dr. McFadden. Pleasure. All right, now we're going to jump into the resident reminder section. So this is a, a segment where we like to bring up a topic that's good for all residents, something that you have to deal with uh, during your residency, seeing inpatients and things like that. And we want to do a quick one today just because we have a longer episode. So what we want to talk about today is fever. Nearly not as fun as the guest lecture we just had, which was an interesting topic, but it's something, like you said, we always have to deal with. Exactly. Much more mundane, but you're going to be asked this on your mock boards, on the boards all the time. They're always going to ask about management of post-op fever. So what we want to talk about is the classic five W's. And as a junior resident, especially, if you're asked this by your senior, just always remember the five W's and work your way through it. So, Wendell, like you said, you're going to be asked this. Someone's yeah. going to ask you. For I've sure. asked every junior resident at some point. I don't know <laughs> so about did you. I. And, yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's an easy one to test them. Yeah. And you can teach yeah. them and kind of see where they're at. And in medicine, this is like, you know, you have to know this like the back of your hand. So the first W we're going to get into is wind. So wind is referring to atelectasis or pneumonia. 
Atelectasis, a little bit debatable in the literature if it actually contributes to fever. But the way we manage that is chest physio. So they're helping them breathe, they're helping them cough, incentive spirometry to try and help their yep. lung capacity and get them once again breathing and coughing. And you know, part of this is going to come up later with walking, but you want them to ambulate, you want to get them walking around. Is this a similar approach to what you guys would do uh, for your inpatients? That's that's pretty much exactly what we would be doing. We may jump a little bit quicker to take it, and I would say right at the beginning too, to do a chest x-ray right away as well, realistically, for any of our kind of wind category that we're talking about. That would be the only thing that I would add there. And just for, for I guess, some people who say, oh, what's the point with fever? Fever and temperature right now is a big deal, even for us in screening patients coming to our office. So it is something that you need to talk about. Yeah, that's actually true. These are other things you need to think about. So another W is going to be water. So water is referring to UTI. So they have yeah. a urinary tract infection. Now, by far, the number one reason for this is going to be they had a Foley catheter in. Even if they have a Foley for the OR and then it's taken out in the recovery unit, which is normally what we do, still increases the chance that they can have an infection. So we usually say DC Foley in like the PACU before transfer to the floor. Is that something you guys do too? So yeah, so I, that's funny that you bring that up. So we weren't, like when I was, I'll tell you the transition to my residency. When I was in first and second year, we were not DCing Foley's. They were usually getting DC'd either when they were up, back on the floor, or the next morning. Third and fourth year, DC'd either in OR, because our hospital was starting to implement that protocol, like Sunnybrook, unless absolutely mandatory, DC fully within the OR, if not packed you before they go up. Yeah, and that's something you, especially for new, this is a tip for new senior residents, these are the things you want to make sure you look for. Nothing's more embarrassing than you're planning your orthopedic discharge, talking to them, talking to the family. Then as you're walking through, they're like, oh, by the way, like, what's going to happen with this catheter? Yeah. And you're thinking, like, I thought that was removed two days ago. Yeah. So definitely something you want to think about. Our next W is going to be walking. So that's referring to DVT. So for us, uh, the patients, you know, if they're admitted for a long time or they're going to be immobile, they're on DVT. Actually, even if they're mobile, they're usually on DVT prophylaxis. So kind of like a fragment delta parin once daily, yeah. sub-Q. And you really got to encourage ambulation. Everyone takes this for granted, which is like, yeah, of course my patient's going to walk. Who wouldn't want to walk? But you got to think of the point of view. You've just had surgery. You want to chill in bed. You want to do nothing. So you, if, unless the doctor tells you you need to get up and walk, they might not. I can't agree with you more. There's a lot of patients where like you would just think, you know what? You're going to want to get out of bed. But then you go see them the next morning. It's like, oh, have you got it? Then they haven't. It's something that you need to reinforce with the patients. And especially these young ones who are getting some, get them getting orthognathic surgery, you got to make the parents make them walk too. Because if not, they are just going to lay in bed. And then when they get home, they're just going to lay in bed. You need them ambulating. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point about them being going home. Because if, if they've been walking in the hospital, it's a good predictor. They're going to walk at home. Otherwise, I didn't think about that. They might just be bedridden at home as well. Yep. So our next W is wound. So this is going to be your surgical site infection. This is the one that everyone thinks of. Yeah. But remember, an infection is going to take at least five to seven days to appear. Nothing's more annoying than the junior resident that first post-up <laughs> day one says, oh, is it an infection from our surgery? It's like, no. Yeah. You, you are obviously not understanding the principles behind this. But you unless, know that one is one is going to tell you that. You know oh, that for sure. Thing. And, and yeah. you know, you don't blame them. We were all there. We all said the same thing. Yeah. But you got to think conceptually. Infections take a while to build up. You're thinking five to seven days. Unless, you know, there's extenuating circumstances like foreign bodies, contaminated wound, yep. uh, immunosuppression. But, you know, for our type of specialty, they're going to usually take five to seven days to appear, yeah. if not longer. And lastly, we have W, Wonder Drugs, which is kind of the category. It's like, we can't figure out what's going on, so we'll just blame medication. So could, any drug could cause a fever, technically, in the post-operative care, uh, especially when you're thinking of big surgeries, blood transfusion. Yeah. Do not forget blood transfusion. You can have a febrile reaction to that, especially in our head and neck oncology cases. That happens sometimes where they'll, they'll be transfused a couple of units. 
So always think of drugs. So those are the five W's. I mean, it's something that we commonly ask our junior residents, commonly asked of us on mock boards and something we wanted to review so that you'll always remember the five W's and it'll help you next time. And if, yeah, like you said, if you kind of just go through it sequentially and you think of every one of those five, you'll cover almost all of the things that, sure, there's some outliers that may be surprise you, but then you're probably not going to be expected to really recall that or know that right away. If you touch these five W's, you're going to hit most of the things where it's like, okay, I should know these right now. Yeah. And the reality is that the person usually asking the question, if you name the five W's and you <laughs> yeah. go through it, they're probably going to be happy because they know you're doing a systematic approach. It's probably what they learned. And exactly. it's a nice way of presenting it. So that was our resident reminder for this week. And uh, now we'll move on to Journal Club. So next up, we have Journal Club. In this segment, we like to review an article from the most recent edition of JOMS. So this will be from the June 2020 edition. I want to do a little uh, disclaimer here, Oscar. This was a dry month in the <laughs> JOMS. I'm just going to throw that out there. You know, I, I, you know what? I'm going to give you credit because, yeah, you're the one that does most of the work, that finds the cool articles. And then when you send me this one, you you said it right away. You're like, it was a slow month. It was, it was a slow month. <laughs> now, full respect to people. You know, they're doing their research. They're, they're yeah. doing their publications. We, we've done that before. We know how hard it is sometimes. But it was a dry month. I'm just going to throw that out there. But it actually kind of worked out well because since there was nothing really obvious that jumped out at us that we wanted to talk about, we got a chance to explore the type of article that I've never really seen before, but is actually super relevant. Yeah. So I this agree. article is entitled, Is Information for Surg- Surgically Assisted Rapid Pelvic Expansion Available on YouTube Reliable? And it's by two people from Turkey, actually. So I'm going to butcher their names, but it's Hatipoglu and Gas. I can't even believe you attempted that because I wouldn't. I yeah, would have got it wrong people are going to sure. see when they see the article. I mean, it's, yeah. it's impossible to, yeah. to explain. But, you know, our pre-screening, uh, it's one is an orthodontist professor and one is a uh, oral maxillofacial surgeon. So huge points right there. Yep. We, we like the authors, we like their profession, and we like the combo of ortho yeah, and yeah. oral Collab- surgery. Collaboration, I like it. Yep. I, I like it. So it passes our pre-screen test. So as you can tell, this is going to be a unique article. The purpose of the article was to assess the quality and accuracy of the information provided on YouTube related to the SARPI. And what they did is they used Google Trends and a YouTube search to look up, you know, videos about SARPI. They categorize it by relevance. So that factors in things like you know, does it mention Sarpy? Is it one of the tags? Uh, mm-hmm. People mention that in the comments. Does it have lots of likes? Does it have lots of views? It kind of collaborates everything together into one thing. And one thing right away they, they mentioned, which I didn't know about, I don't know about you, Oscar, but previous studies have shown that users, when they search on YouTube, will only consider at most the first 60 videos. Never even knew, like had an idea about that. So I was surprised because for me, Everyone knows when a Google search, if you're not on the first page, you might as well be on like the 4,000th page. Yeah. Because you're only going to look at the first few options. But for YouTube, I've I've never looked up to 60 videos. It's usually the first few as well. There's no chance. Yeah. But I I guess guess if you're you're looking for something more niche, if you're looking for for Sarpy, do you think, "Ah, I think I would still look at the first top videos. Yeah. 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 So I don't think, think, honestly, I don't think I'd go back like past 10 to 15, in my honest opinion. Yeah. So they found 200 videos. They excluded 68 because they had no audio. Honestly, if you have a video about surgery or something and there's no audio, you're doing it wrong. They weren't in English, so that's fair. They were duplications of one another. They were unrelated to the SARPI. Or it was like a multi-part video with more than three parts. It's like, I I think they didn't want to waste their time doing that. So you end up with 132 videos. So pretty large sample size as far as YouTube videos. They watched... Mm -hmm. The two authors independently watched all 132 videos and they calculated things. So they calculated what's called an interaction index, which basically factors in the amount of likes versus dislikes. 
So right away, I'm going to say, I think that's one of the negative parts of the study, because for anyone that's watched YouTube, do you really take the time to like or dislike the video? I don't think I've ever liked a video. Ever. <laughs> Have you ever disliked a video? No, and I've never just for that matter. I've never disliked one either. <laughs> also, if you're, I mean, I might be wrong here, but if you're watching YouTube on like your TV or something, I don't think there's an option to hit like or dislike. That's part, yeah, yeah. I never thought of that either. So unless you're on a different browser or some of that. So I, I wouldn't factor in likes versus dislikes. No one really cares about that too much. However, they also calculated viewing rate. So the number of views per day over the course of the video. So that's mm -hmm. obviously very yeah. relevant. They analyzed multiple topic domains. So things like, was it educational? Did they talk about symptoms, complications, recovery? Just like 20 different topics they evaluated, which were very good. And they divided this into low, moderate, or high quality content for consumption. So pretty much the results of the 132 videos, 34 were moderate level of quality and 98 were low level. They didn't have a single video they considered high quality. And the average of their quality index was uh, was 5.5 out of 22. So yeah, overall, not great. They Yeah, overall, not great. They were not happy with these videos, whether or not that was a result of them being very strict or the videos being very poor quality. I'm going to lean on the side of videos being poor quality. Yeah, because like 5.5 is quite low. So even if you're strict, that's that's still a pretty low out of a 20 something scale. Exactly. What people need to realize is that even if these are low quality videos, they are making a huge impact. The average length was five and a half minutes, but the average number of views in these videos was 3,860 views. Yeah. Can you imagine if 4,000 people listen to this podcast every week? Yeah. Or every month, I should say. Yeah. That'd be insane. Yeah. So they're getting a high, and that's high the average, volume of traffic. Right? That's the average. Yeah. Yeah. There were yeah. some, we're going to some examples later on, but there were some that were over 100,000 views. Yeah. Now, this is the very important thing to consider. Of the 132 videos, 126 were testimonials and six were educational. So a testimonial video, for those that don't know, is someone that's undergone the surgery and is making a video describing their experience. That could be positive, negative, neutral. It can be whatever the person says. Whereas educational is, you know, usually a surgeon or an orthodontist explaining the procedure, explaining why you need to do it and kind of going around about that. So right away, you got to be very careful with these testimonial videos. Yeah, there's nothing uh, really backing them. They're not getting fact check. It's just this is my experience, right? Not exactly. ideal. Yeah. Yeah. And I also have to think the type of person that's going to record themselves before, during, after surgery, that's already a selection bias. A hundred percent, right? Like I would never do that. I would never do that either. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we're people that are recording our voices every month. Exactly. And we wouldn't even want to yeah. record ourselves for surgery. Things like that. Yeah. We're probably both going to pretend we never had the surgery and we've just been working out a lot or something. <laughs> like that. So their conclusion was YouTube is inadequate as a source of accurate and balanced information. And both of us definitely agree with that. I want to get into some specific examples. So I thought reading this article is amazing and I love, I love what they did, but I got to go to the source. I got to look up some of these videos. So I actually went on YouTube. And I just searched things like Sarpy or like, you know, different testimonials or educational content. So I'm just going to point out a few. So the first one I'm going to point out is there's a channel that's, you know, for mothers. It's, it's a channel meant for moms. And the mom underwent a Sarpy. And she posted a video before having the Sarpy explaining why she's having it, her braces experience and what it's going to do. And then she posted a video afterwards. And there's like pictures and all this stuff. And it has 14 and a half thousand views. It has 60 comments, and this is only in a year. What you're saying is we need a mom on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this is a huge influence. And it remember, yeah. who is determining 
surgery for these kids, teenagers sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's their parents. Yeah. So if you're reaching out to all the moms and explaining, that could be a huge influence on whether or not this parent wants their child to undergo orthopedic surgery at all. Yeah. That's kind of what I took of this, of this article. Because really at first, when you first gave me the article, I'm like, what am I reading this for? Like, what <laughs> are we doing here? And so then, and then I started to really think, I'm like, really, a lot of us, a lot of things that we look up are on YouTube, right? Like you find a new topic, you're like, let me look it up. Or even when you're in residency, you're going to do a surgery you've never done. You'll, I'm sure every resident has done it. You're going to go see if there's a video on that surgery. Maybe yeah. not on YouTube, but you're going to go online and type it video just to see how it works. So this is actually a huge platform that isn't really used well enough for us to learn or to kind of get our message about a certain topic out. Like you said, who dictates if their kids are going to have orthognathic surgery? Sure, it's the kids. But it's the parents that are really dictating that. Yeah, they're guiding them. Exactly. Because they probably decided they need braces in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Like no kid is going to come up to you and be like, oh, I, want, I want braces. No, their kids, are, their parents are going to talk to them and then they're going to get braces. Exactly. Yeah. So the next one I want to point out is the number one video on Sarpy on YouTube is called Sarpy Actual Expansion. It's published 13 years ago. It has 111,000 views. It's 27 seconds long. It's a video in the, in the OR showing from like a worm's eye view to the palate, showing them doing the Hyrax expansion after the, the Sarpy has been done. And the guy's kind of dictating, oh, now we're going to turn the key. <laughs> and after 20 seconds, it stops expanding. Like it's not really working. And the guy says, no, that's not really working. Let me see the saw again. <laughs> and then the video cuts out. So the number, and it, it's it's graphic. It's, you know, we're, we're surgeons, so we, we don't care. This is what we video. chose to do, right? If we, if I was a patient looking at this video, I would be terrified yeah. of orthognathic surgery and SARPs for yeah. sure. So that's the number one. And the last one I want to talk about is the number one educational one is, you know, very quick as well. It's about a minute long. And it's pretty much, you know, the dolphin imaging yes. video series. Yeah. They've basically taken that and they've put it on YouTube. So it's a, it's a dolphin video for SARPy. Love these videos because it's all cartoons, yeah. very high quality, very good educational content, shows the cuts, the movements, everything. I love it because it's bloodless. I love it because it makes it look beautiful. It makes it look like a no-brainer you should have. It makes it look simple. So I think they're great for patient education. There's no audio, so no one's really explaining it. So that's one of the red flags. But one funny thing is it has 80,000 views, 14 comments. And I was reading through some of the comments and one person asked, what is the cost of the surgery? So that was by far the most like trafficked comment and people responding. But one random person said, I had the surgery in Montreal and the total cost after everything. Now, keep in mind, they're factoring braces too, obviously, was yeah. $7,000. So I was like, okay, that kind of okay. yeah. makes sense. But then someone else responded saying, I've also had the surgery in Ontario and it costed $12,000. Who was so, doing the surgery? Yeah, so who was doing the surgery? So, so Oscar, do you have a five thousand dollar pay raise over the surgery in Montreal? Or what's going, what's going on with this interprovincial? I've done no sarpy since I've been out. You've done no okay, so it wasn't you. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was just funny that uh, two of the commenters were actually from Canada, from our two provinces, and, and the cost difference there. So overall, what I learned from this is not only the impact of social media. We kind of already knew that. But also, I never thought of YouTube from a surgical point of view, from patient testimonials. And what I realized when I was watching these videos and what I gravitated to is you want to see yourself in the video. We are residents. When we look up things on YouTube, we are looking for the person that's going to explain the procedure and all the steps and show us how to actually do it. Like, that's where I think 
I'm on full agreement with you that I got this article and that I think I didn't appreciate it before I started reading. Like I said, I kind of just made fun of the title when you sent it to me. I even sent you a text like, what is this? Um, <laughs> is the fact that, yeah, I think there's two huge outlets that can be really like expanded on. And one you just said is the patient version where it's like, yeah, let's not make it graphic. Let's make it cartoony. Let's make it look like this is what you can expect, but not overstimulate them where they never want to get the surgery done. And then two is a resident one or a surgical one where it's like, yeah, walk me through step by step, even with that worm's eye view, not ideally for that, for, for the surgical part, but walk me through every step. Let me see the cuts so that the first time I go into the OR, I'm actually know what I'm going to expect or kind of I'm prepared because you can read anything in a textbook. We all know in our age, we now like to see things better. If you can physically see the surgery, it is yeah, going to be We're easier. visual learners. A hundred percent. Anyone, yeah. right? So and I then, think that's right. Two, two avenues that we can explore that really aren't. Because from a patient point of view, think about it. If you're a patient, you want to see, the, if you're a young male, you want to see a YouTube video of a young male that went through the surgery. Yeah. You want to identify with that. You don't really want a professor in a lab coat explaining to the indications why this is a great procedure. No. And it just got kind of a light bulb went off my head. And that, that's why some of these channels are so popular. If, you, if you're a mom or an older female and you're going through the surgery, you'd love to listen to another mom's struggles to go through the surgery and what she had to go through. So something we definitely have to watch out for going forward is these types of social media channels. There is zero fact checking, as you said. I yeah. was listening to some of these people explain, and one guy was explaining that post-op, he had just finished his one week checkup and everything was going great and the surgeon removed the sutures. He still had some sutures left on the bottom. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, why do you have sutures on your yeah. mandible? What's going on here? So you yeah. really got to take these things with a grain of salt. And the other thing is a lot of these people are, are, have kind of ulterior motives. For example, one person, a big a trend with YouTube videos for Sarpy is they want to show you how big the gap is, the diastem is between their centrals. It's like a it's like, a, oh, look how funny this looks. Like, this yeah. is kind of a calling card. But then if you read through it, they're doing it to kind of do paid promotion. So they say, what really helped me is I use this type of blender for smoothies, and that's how I increase my nutrition with these supplements. So you really got to be careful sometimes. So that, that's the thing with us on this podcast. We cannot be bought. We're uh, no commercial bias. You know how in presentations they say, well, well uh, how much are, are we no offering here? Well, okay, you're right. <laughs> we're open. We're open. We're open for purchase, but it's got to be the right sponsor. Yeah. yeah. And don't, the right throw, price. don't throw everything off the table, Wendell. <laughs> <laughs> that's really true. All right, so that's it for our journal club. Let's move on to recommendations. So, Oscar, do you have any recommendations for our audience this week? Yeah, people are going to start thinking I'm a TV junkie, which I'm actually not. Really, I'm a sports junkie, but there's no sports there's no on sports. TV. And I can't go to I'm not really going to work, so there's nothing much else to do. I live in a condo, so there's nothing, again, much to do. We live in Canada. It's cold. You're not going outside that much. So I've, I've been resorting to TV. I obviously, like I said last time, I finished Game of Thrones. So now I jumped on the bandwagon of another older show that everyone says, a lot of people say, is the number one show ever, ever created. And so it's Sopranos. Okay. And at first, I kind of like I was with Game of Thrones, I was like, okay, this is all Did right. Did you finish it or where are you in I'm it? on the last season. So I'm on We're season last... six. Yeah. Season six is the last season. Okay. Yeah. And so realistic, when I first started it, kind of like I felt with Game of Thrones, where I was like, okay, I get it. It's pretty good, but I'm not necessarily loving it. And then it just hit like maybe episode five or six that I just got super into it. And people had warned me. It is a little bit slow also to create more like a story. It's not a show that you're just going to binge watch because you're just going to be so excited for the next episode. I, I've but heard it, it's very bad for binging. It is. It, what it people is. don't realize is TV wasn't built for binging. It was built for one week at a time in suspense. Exactly. And that's the definition of this show. Like if you try to watch it in five days, like, oh, I'm just going to crush all the episodes. No, I wouldn't recommend that. But if you let it sit and then you watch the next episode and then you let it sit, 
it's amazing. Like the character build up, the story that you see, it's really, really good. So I would definitely recommend it. I'm on fully on the bandwagon now. Definitely watch Sopranos. That's good to know because I actually started a few years ago and I got, I think the beginning of season two and I was like, this is just too slow. Yeah, I, yep. I don't like this. And I actually gave up on it, but I will have to pick it back up at some point for sure. Cause you're right. Everyone talks about it. It's like a classic show. Yeah. And what are you doing now? What have you been up to? So for me, I'll also give a TV recommendation. So I don't know about you, Oscar, but I'm someone that's not, I don't know anything about cars or formula one or anything like that. So for past six years, every single summer, there's a weekend in Montreal F1 weekend, Formula One weekend. And I always looked at it as just this annoyance that I had to do it because the entire city's closed. Everything is five times more expensive. And I never understood the hype. I was like, it's Formula One. What is this? Who cares about Formula yeah. One? So then I was introduced by my brother-in-law to this show called Formula One Drive to Survive. It's on Netflix. There's been two seasons. And what they did is they took cameras and they filmed all the behind the scenes of Formula One for the entire season and also interviewed the racers, the managers, the owners of all these different uh, teams, and they follow them throughout the world circuit. And what I never realized is this is like one of the most competitive sports. Oh, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's all mind games. It's a really dangerous sport. And the races are unpredictable. So a lot of times you can predict kind of who's going to win or the top, and you can predict who's at the bottom. Yeah. But I didn't realize that the middle area oh. is the greatest competition. Yeah. Everyone like, is so close to one another. Anyone, anyone can win a race, lose a race. They can crash at any second. It is like thrilling to so watch. So I'm going to be biased already because I've never seen this show, but I'm a huge, like I said, sports fan. So anything that's on TV, I watch and I really like Formula One. So I'm for sure going to be watching this. Yeah. So the season one, I think they're only like eight episodes each. So it's really quick. Season one is the 2018 season. And then season two is the 2019 season. So you get to watch it. You get to kind of, you, you actually learn about the teams, learn about the drivers and like that. It's phenomenal. It's super addicting. It's definitely bingeable because it's just one season. So you can just keep watching the entire uh, Formula One season as it as it goes on. And yeah, you learn a lot about Formula One. And now I get the hype. And now I'm like, well, now Formula One's amazing, leaving. but I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I have heard, you know, in person, it's not the same because, you know, you're sitting one spot, you're just waiting for the cars to go around. But I highly recommend that show. And that's going to be my recommendation for this week. So that concludes episode two of Teeth and Titanium. I know it was a longer episode this month, but it's going to be a little bit longer when we have guests on. We don't want to rush anyone. And also, we're only coming to you once a month. So we want to give you some content to enjoy on your drive or at the gym or wherever you're listening. Thanks to everyone supporting the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify. You can reach out to us. We officially have an email, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We want people to email us questions suggestions for the resident reminder or journal club you can also email us suggestions for possible guests to have on the show or things you want us to talk about or even if you want to be a guest on the show for sure reach out to us we always want to hear from our listeners and that's going to conclude this episode and we'll see you guys next month